Hello. My mic's working. You know, I always, oh. when pastors do that, I'm like, you got to turn the mic on. And I did the okay. exact th- thing that uh, I critique pastors for. Well, hello. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Good. Oh, I got a response. There it is. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. Man, you are making me feel so much better. I'm a little out of my element up here, but um, thank you guys for being here to our Credo Deep Dive series. I want to ask one thing of you. Uh, actually, Jeff wants to ask if you guys can just all just blame it on Jeff. Yeah, come forward and you not guys move go a little back, closer. Actually, you guys are so far, so far away. <laughs> Especially you, Ashley. I see you back there. <laughs> come near. Thank you guys so much, man. Uh, I'm excited to jump in tonight um, on our panel. I'm Dalton Davis. I'm the media director here at Living Streams, and I'm blessed to hang out with. Mr. Ryan Romeo. Yes, here Hi. I am. Hello. Uh, Dr. John Chung, correct? Pleased to be okay, here, he trained me. And then um, my, my, one of my best friends, Jeff Goki. I love that. <laughs> Thank you, though. Jeff and I meet like every two weeks, so he knows all my deepest, darkest secrets. Um, he's a good guy. Well, um, we're uh, diving into a lot tonight um, as we were preparing for the panel discussion tonight. Um, we're covering um, a bunch of different questions, but they're all kind of in the same vein and they all kind of flow together. So let's start off um, with a really easy one. Um, did Jesus actually descend into hell? I hate to hear the hard question if that's the easy one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, did Jesus actually descend into hell? Why would he do that? Where were the origins of this component of the Apostles' Creed? Like, where did that come from uh, from a biblical standpoint? <laughs> My favorite thing, like last week when I, like, we read the Creed together and we got to that part, it just was watching people and it was like, descended into hell. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, am yeah. I really saying that you out loud? You can see yeah. the question marks yeah. on everyone's head. Descended so many into questioning hell? and confused faces. So we promised you we'd talk about it. So yeah. Uh, I, I, think, I think John to go should start this one out. Because yeah, John... John... I think John should start. <laughs> <laughs> I have stuff to add, but I think John has a John, great... John, I think you yeah. should start. Give me a hell of a time here now. <laughs> <laughs> um... So when we think of heaven and hell, we, a lot of people think that heaven is a place and hell is a place as well. Uh, but really, I think uh, what heaven is and what hell is, it's really a spiritual reality in the fact that I, I define heaven as the fullness of God's presence. So where one is, with the fullness of God's presence, that is already heaven. And that is where we will be with God forever. That's heaven. And so conversely, hell is the furthest place spiritually is from God. So it's not so much a spatial thing, but it is more a spiritual reality of the fullness of God's presence, heaven, and the lack of that furthest, you know, a spiritual state from God's presence. So in this sense, uh, when I read that you know, Jesus descended into hell, of course, you, one could say the word descended uh, connotes a sense of space, but hell really is a place where unredeemed souls, people who have not known God or, and will never ever know God because they are in this utter place of darkness, is where Jesus meets those uh, prisoners 
who are stuck in that uh, state of never ever knowing God or being redeemed. So this is how uh, I would read that. Yeah, and I think we, and we were talking before this, um, where we, we find unity on this, and I think just in Orthodox Christian belief in general, heaven and hell, we believe, are a real, it's a real place. Uh, though it's mysterious, those are, though there's a lot of language that's wrapped around it, it's, it's, it's a reality, it's a spiritual reality. Um, and I think when, when you look at this in the creed, it, it was even brought in later on in the creed. Um, because there's a lot of question about it. So Ephesians 4 would be one of those places where Paul talks about if Jesus ascended, then he descended into the lowest places of the earth. Uh, Acts uh, chapter 2 also talks about, you know, God did not leave him in um, the place of the dead. And so there's a lot of language that, I, I mean, I think really where we would probably find better language that we would agree on would be uh, that Jesus descended into uh, into the place of the dead, and we'd go, oh yeah, you know. Um, the question that starts to come up, so so what would be the problem with this sort of this sort of thought? Um, as soon as we say that, somebody came up to me on Sunday and they said, well, what about when Jesus said uh, to the thief on the cross, "Today you will be with me in paradise"? What is what is that? And um, and there's this sort of this idea, and actually, it was a, a Bible study I did with Joel Fritz that we first started talking about this. Um, but he, he, he talked about when uh, Jesus gave the parable about Lazarus, um, not the Lazarus that we know, but the parable of Lazarus and, um, and Abraham's bosom is what they would call it. And it's this place of the dead where there were people that were being uh, uh, soothed and they were down in, in the place of the dead. And then there was the place of hell that was next to it. And they could see each other. And there was this place of torment, you know. And so the, the question would be is, today you'll see me in paradise. Well, that would make sense if Jesus is descending into the place of the dead. Not hell like the, the lake of fire in Revelation. Not like maybe we would imagine it. But he would descend into that place. Um, and so, so to me, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that he would descend into that place, but he wouldn't descend into what we would consider sort of the lake of fire. Um, and I think the, uh, this is one of those areas, too, where we were talking about it. Bible-believing Christians can differ on some of these things. You know, we can have some sort of disagreement on this a little bit. Um, and there are really reasonable people that could say on both sides. But, but for me, I think it's, it's better, would be a better, better phrase to say he descended into the place of the dead. So. And that would be Hades, as opposed yes. to Sheol. Uh, right? Hades and Sh- Sheol, Sheol, yeah, yeah. S- similar. So, I mean, Gehenna would be maybe Gehenna. a little bit, yeah, different. But, um, but those are those are phrases that's used often. So it's descending into the place uh, place of the dead. Uh, there's some. There's uh, first first Peter um, first Peter three talks about Jesus. Uh, taking the captives with him. So there's some, some thought process there that he's taking captives from the place of the dead. Um, and, um, but, but I think the idea when he said, today you will see me in paradise, I think that tells me that he's going somewhere different than hell. Um, and then the, the other thing that we were talking about, and maybe Jeff, you can pick up on this, is uh, the idea that somehow he's atoning further for sin starts to get us into a little bit slippery territory. Yeah, so that was the one where we, we said, okay, so then what are, 
where can we go sideways on this? And I, there is a whole other realm of thinking, and there's really well-known teachers who teach that, well, actually the work wasn't done on the cross. He had to descend and then kind of finish the work. So when he said, it is finished, it actually wasn't. And he had to go do some other work, and then it was truly finished. And we would go, that you need to be really careful. And so, I mean, Joyce Myers, Olstein, these are people who are teaching that. And we would, I would think we would all agree, be very, be very wary of that teaching. Um, when Jesus says it's finished, he means it. <laughs> That's why he said it. <laughs> yeah. And, and if we start adding things like that, uh, which create all these weird roads theologically, like just be very aware with some of those teachers who kind of go down those roads. Um, I probably have a little stronger, I would, I would say that's a little more heretical. Um, some may say that it's not so heretical, but I would go, that's really, really shaky ground and to be uh, really careful of that. So yeah, that was one thing I brought up as like, well, there are the way people have viewed that. And we were talking about this earlier, that particular section of the creed is, it's been changed a little bit. It's been moot. So it's the part that we would say is probably the weakest part of the creed. Would you, would you agree with that? Isn't that what you were saying? One of the weaker parts of the creed? Yeah, I think the weakest part of the creed is really when it comes to the part about Jesus Christ, that it only states that he's born of, of virgin birth and then uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate and died, you know, descended in hell. But it really omits the life of Christ, yeah. what he does between the birth and the death. Uh, so, you know, we take it for what it is. Uh, it is yeah. just uh, a construction of the early church fathers, and the early church fathers are human beings, not yeah. perfect. But nonetheless, they do give, uh, I think, still relatively good summary. But yeah. that, I think, is really one of the weakest part of the creed. Yeah. And that's why we, we were saying, you know, the creed is a really great structure for us for the sermon series. It's awesome. Um, but we're not exegeting uh, the creed. <laughs> the creed is a, a really good thing that points us to um, truth that's in the word. And then we start to ex exegete the word, which Alex sitting right here uh, was really helpful in bringing language around that. Uh, so when so when we look at some of these things and we go, oh, that's kind of a weaker part of the creed, that doesn't mean that we're saying it's a weak part of theology. It's just a weak part of, of that yeah. uh, sort of understanding and, of it. And yeah. I'd also, it, it, it's not in the other creeds, yeah. right? It's not in Nicene. Yeah. I don't, no. So I, it's not in the other creeds, yeah. I don't believe. So David that, might that be able to correct us. Of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do we have a fact checker? <laughs> yeah, do we have a live Alex, fact checker? Matt, That'd be helpful. Please, right. please <laughs> fact check us. Um, okay, cool. So, yeah, we're, um, there's some revelation talk before we came up here. Um, John, you had some things to say about revelation, especially about um, 117 when it says um, that uh, – John describes a vision he had of Jesus. It says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. And I thought you pointed out something that was really meaningful about, um, one, um, how we interpret scripture when it comes to revelation, and then two, what that means specifically, because we sing songs that include, you know, I've stolen the keys of hell, right? So can you unpack a little bit about what you were saying on that? Could I back us up a little bit too? Sure. Because I also, th I, I, potentially this could call it work together, but also like, what do you do with the flames? And what do you do with the burning? And you know, all, all that, what do you do with streets of gold? And you know, so if it's not the spatial, you know, 
so it kind of ties in with where Dalton's going, but I, so that question is really. We're all just interviewing you, John up yeah, here, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm John. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's my long lost brother. Yeah, yeah, he uh, is. Yeah. Uh, so Revelation is really what is called apocalyptic literature, and in apocalyptic literature, uh, it's full of symbolisms. Uh, it's full of images, and it's full of uh, numbers and all of these. Uh, garish or extraneous or just fantastical visions that sometimes we can't wrap our heads around. And so that already gives us a clue that when we read uh, the book of Revelation or even the book of Daniel, both of which are apocalyptic literature, the, the primary way in which it's trying to teach us about God and the way God works in this world is through symbols. So, because of this, we have to be careful to not interpret these symbols as literal, material things that relate to our world. So, one example would be, uh, there, there's a part where uh, some of, one of the angels unleashes uh, the plagues, you know, like uh, uh, hornets, you know, or bees that are stinging people, and some commentators and say, oh, these are modern-day helicopters, you know, Apache helicopters that are just shooting hellfire missiles, you know. So that's really trying to take a symbol. And It sounds kind of cool. Maybe it could. Maybe not. It sounds like a movie, yeah. It's a hypersonic missile now, who knows. Got to be cool missiles if it's shooting missiles. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. It's definitely an Americanized version you of that for sure. Because yeah, that, that ties go. in. I, I can feel I that. Yeah. We are derailing you, John. Sorry. So sorry, sorry John. Yeah. I'm your host for so, tonight. So. So when it comes to like uh, burning lake of fire, okay. Uh, when it comes to keys, uh, for example. So these are symbols. So the thing is, what is the symbol trying to help us to understand uh, the essence of it? So the, the, the essence of a key is really that anybody has a key has the authority to open a door or to close a door. So a key really gives that person access to uh, another uh, place or, you know, or a state of reality that one has, that position of power. So it seems that Jesus has the keys you know, uh, of life and death or Hades and so forth. John is looking at the risen, resurrected Christ who is now God in heaven and God who is omnipowerful, omnipotent, all-present has that authority, Jesus Christ, to open or to close those gates uh, of our life or of death. So I think uh, if we stay on that as the primary means in which Revelation is trying to communicate to us, then we don't go into the secondary or the third or the fourth other interpretation, which are not uh, the primary means in which Revelation is trying to communicate these truths to us, right? So it's the same thing with the flames of hell as well. Uh, for me, when I read the flames of hell, I don't read them as literally burning flames or the literally burning lake of fire and so forth. What, what was the essence of a flame? Uh, when one reads the, the Bible, a flame uh, has this connotation of passion as well. Hearts that are fire, passions that are burning. And so it's very interesting that the people that are going to be tossed or found a lake of fire are, along with other people who have these passions of their heart, the flames of their unquenched desires that have never been redeemed. They've never been saved by the cross of Christ. And so it is like always constantly seeking 
to have these burning desires to satisfy themselves, but in hell, they will never be able to satisfy their own burning uh, desires, which will torment them on and on and on. So this is uh, my take on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's really helpful, especially because we have such a um, variety of believers that go to our church, even my be in this room, you know, to understand um, how we interpret uh, Revelation Scripture is really important. I thought that was, when I heard that, I was like, that is so valuable, you know, especially for us that have been in the faith for a long time and can come to those um, basics and principles. Thank you, John. Yeah, yeah. we did a series, what, a year and a half ago, <clears throat> something like that, on Revelation. So that's actually a pretty helpful place. I think we did a pretty good job of China we walk. did an excellent job. We, hey, <laughs> Didn't hey, we do well, awesome? Well <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> we just solved all the questions about Revelation in that series. No, I, I actually think, I think we did a fairly good job of trying to walk through some of that apocalyptic writing and what's going on and, and try to explain that. So even as yeah. we talk about boundary markers as it relates to the book of Revelation, yeah. Like, that could be a good resource for, to go to. But for clarity for us, it's like, again, in this series, we're trying to figure out, okay, what are these boundary markers? What are these things that we don't want to cross over into? So uh, one thing we wouldn't want to cross into is this idea that there is no hell and that there is no consequence after, after life. Uh, th- that is something that I think our society is working really hard to try to erase because it makes us really uncomfortable. Um, and I think if we're all honest, we would love to to not have to talk about that. Uh, we had talked about that even as a teaching team um, months ago, saying, what are some realities that we need to start talking about? Um, and maybe even especially the realities that we don't really want to talk about, but we know they're biblical and we have to address them. Hell is one of those, one of those things that have to be addressed. Um, so the boundary conditions for me is, there's all sorts of different interpretation for hell and what it could be like. And I think we all agree it's a place where there's an absence of God. There's, it's a place where uh, there is no, the, the people who have not received the redemption of Christ are there. It's a place of torment. All of those things we understand. The figurative language, what does it actually mean? What is it really like? We have no idea, but it is a real place. Um, and as, a, as the church, we have to continue to, to talk about some of these things that we're uncomfortable with a little bit to deep down, but this is a boundary marker for us that we have to go, no, this is a real place. Hell is, is a reality, biblically. So. But the part in the creed that I really do love is there's a rescue in, in that whole thing. Yes. The whole scene is a rescue. So even the descending into hell is a, is, is a rescue. Yeah. You know, it's a rescue. It's a completing a work. And yeah. that's the part that we go, we affirm that fully in Jesus. Yes. He is the only one. He is the sinless son of God, the only one yeah. who could do that work. And yes, I, yeah. absolutely. And even figuratively, like, did Jesus yeah. ransom us from exactly. hell? Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. did Jesus pull us from hell? Yeah, absolutely. And he did a completed work on the cross that, that, accomplish that so yeah well thank you guys for that clarity yeah appreciate it that <laughs> it's our response clarity. it's not our answer it's our response over there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah let's get into the trinity yeah, let's get into the hard <laughs> questions here yeah <laughs> um man you guys are pros i you'll no. you'll do great That's what i'm up here i'm like i'm not yeah. doing great you guys are doing great there seems to be some mystery to what we understand as the trinity that doctrinally we subscribe to what is the importance of the Trinity when it comes to the fruit it bears and how can we apply it to our lives? I'll start this one off because I don't want to go after John because he's got a really good thing when it comes to this. Um, 
Um, but I, I think like this last Sunday, I was addressing this because this is one of those common heresies about Jesus. So um, I, I shared a stat on, on Sunday uh, that I can't remember exactly the number. I think it was 65%. Um, it, it's a very high percentage um, of, of evangelical Christians who agree with the statement that Jesus was created by God, that Jesus was the best creation of God. Um, and, and that is heretical (laughs) to, to say that Jesus was created by God is it's not, it's not biblical and it's not based on the, the view of the Trinity. So I did a, I did a pretty deep dive on Sunday, but in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. There is this, this imagery that's throughout the entire, uh, New Testament that, that, pushes us into, and John was talking about a ton of them. Uh, the baptism of Jesus is one of the best where you see all three, like, persons of the Trinity all at one place. Um, but we believe Orthodox Christianity, the Orthodox Christian belief is that Jesus was there from the beginning. There was, and the beginning of God was in, you know, infinitely before that. But um, there is no hierarchy in the Godhead. There's not like a, oh, you've got God the Father and then the Son and then the Spirit. No, there's, there's three, three persons of the Trinity in one. Um, and, to, and to say that Jesus was created uh, is actually kind of, it, it's a fairly common, obviously, but heretical statement. You I, know. Something we didn't prepare, but... Yes, is good, that, throw me a curveball. Um, is that... Um, is it normal for maybe newer believers or like, wouldn't that be a natural line of thinking um, as yes. maybe a new believer or somebody who's starting to um, go to church? Absolutely. The and then I'm going to let John, because John's got a really great thing. Okay. But, I, but, I, but I think it is. It's, I think it's a natural thing. And honestly, I read that stat and I go, that's, that's not the general, um, that's a, the problem is church leaders didn't teach that. Like, so there's, there's people that maybe we think about it and we might even go, oh, the Trinity's really mysterious. And we might just use that as, honestly, an excuse to not teach about it. But uh, yes, the Trinity is mysterious. But what I really was honing in on this Sunday is just what you said, the fruit of the Trinity. So the Trinity itself is mysterious. I can't sit here and go, this is exactly how it works, you know? Uh, even that diagram, some of you have seen, it's like Father, Son, yeah. Spirit, and then you've got God in the middle, and then you're like, is, but is not. It's, and like, it's like an egg, or there's water. Yes, yeah, that's the egg, or there's yeah. water, and it's ice, and, but none of those will fully explain the Trinity. They just, they just won't. Um, but the fruit of the Trinity, and this to me I feel like was a, a revelation mo- moment for me this, this last week. Um, the fruit of the Trinity is very evident. So, what do I mean? So the fruit of the Trinity would be this. We, we say that God is love, right? The New Testament says that God is love. That is who he is. That is deeply embedded into who he is as God. This is his nature. But if God is love and there wasn't Trinity before we were, before we were brought onto the scene, then who is God loving? Well, nobody, if it's the lone wolf God who's just doing his thing, he would have no reference point for love. How, how can you be a God of love when there's nothing else to love? So the Trinity solves that problem. Like the Trinity proves that God is love and God is not dependent on us to be a God of love. If he was the lone wolf God and there was no Trinitarian sort of God, God, Godhead, 
we would be the ones that he's loving and he would be dependent on us to be a God of love. And that is not biblical either. Like God is, he's always been a God of love. You could, you could take the word father, it's same thing. So is God dependent on us, his children to be father? Well, no, that's been his nature since before we were there. Well, how can that be the reality without the Trinity? And so that's why I meant the fruit of the Trinity. It's, and again, these are abstract ideas, but they, they are just enough, as God often does. He gives us just enough in the mystery, just enough to wrap our head around to go, oh yeah, no, this is a vitally important doctrine. It's not just, a, I think his last name was Reeves. I can't remember uh, the book that I was referencing. Um, but he said, it's, it's, not, it's not just a throwaway doctrine. It's not just a, oh yeah, but also it's a big mystery. No, it's deeply rooted into what we believe about the nature of God. And so from a theological, philosophical perspective, that's something that I hone in on and I loved. Uh, but John had a little bit more personal yeah, way to look so at it. Some, uh, a theologian said this, I can't remember his name, but a theologian said that the doctrine of the Trinity is really the most practical doctrine of all. And when I first read that, I thought, what? <laughs> Did I miss something <laughs> in my seminary studies? Did I miss something in church? Did I, am I missing something in all my 20, 30 years of being a Christian? And I never really understood it until one day I met a Muslim who came to Christ. I asked him about his experience. And he told me that uh, when uh, the authorities found out that he became a Christian, uh, they put him in jail and they tried to get him back into Islam by asking him hard theological questions. And one of them was, the Trinity. God is Father, Jesus is Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, you, know, God, God, you know, the Father is God, Jesus, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Come on, three gods, Islam. So simple, only one God. How do you explain that? You guys are so illogical. Why would you believe in such an illogical faith? And this convert, basically, uh, I asked the convert, I said, so what did you do, you know? He said, well... I, I was a new believer, and the only response I gave to uh, the prison guard was this. Uh, when I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, now I can call God my Father because His Spirit lives in me. I was utterly shocked at his explanation because he gave a profoundly simple but powerful statement of the Trinity in that very compact statement. And what this new convert was saying was that the Trinity wasn't one times one times one times one equals to one, which is a mathematical abstraction which makes sense but has no relational basis to us whatsoever, number one. And number two, uh, it tells us nothing uh, about uh, who God is and how He came to reveal himself to us personally in the way that the pages of Scripture unfolds himself. And it was from that very first experience that set me on a journey, which, I, which still continues to this day even in my Bible, to understand that the Bible already explains who God is as a Trinitarian God 
right there in front of us, but we are looking for all of these abstract explanations. So, for example, Ryan mentioned a baptism, right? In the baptism of Jesus, as Jesus enters the river Jordan, God, the Father, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Holy Spirit, as a dove, descends upon Jesus. So we see the three, you know, persons of the Trinity right there at that very second. And the Bible gives us a very vivid relational picture. It is not a mathematical abstraction. It is not a theological doctrine that is just out there. It is very real and concrete. And another example, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus tells the disciples, you know, go in out there for baptizing them in the name, one name in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it's very interesting because Jesus' ministry opens with the Trinity and then closes with the Trinity. Okay, and actually the, the book of Revelation also closes with the Trinity. It's right there. And Genesis 1 opens with the Trinity as well because God the Father, God created the heaven and earth. Genesis 1, 1, and then Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit hovered above. You see, and then the, how do we know the Son is there? Because John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. You see, so the Bible opens with the Trinity. It's a very concrete picture. God relationally relating to creation closes in Revelation with a consummation, and then Jesus opens with a trinity and ends with a trinity in his life as well. So, so we see this very, very concrete picture. We don't have to make up some magical things. So I think for any of us, you can find the trinity when you read the New Testament. You find those clusters. It's always clustered within four or five verses. The Father or the Spirit or the Son along those verses, or God, the Son, or the Lord, uh, the Lord, or the Spirit. That's where the Trinity is, you see. So again, Romans chapter 8 is one example, you know. Uh, how, how do we become sons of God? You know, the, 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 the Spirit, you know, births us, right? Helps us to be sons of God so that sons, right? Pattern after Jesus Christ so that we can call God Abba, Father, you see. Trinitarian as well. So the Trinity helps us to understand how we relate to God uh, in salvific terms. Uh, another application in prayer. Uh, when Jesus says, you know, pray like this, our Father in heaven, right? So we pray to our Father in heaven. But then Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And then Romans 8 says that when we pray, the Spirit helps us to pray, you know, with words or groanings that cannot be uttered. So the Trinity is involved in our prayer. So the Holy Spirit helps us to pray, and it reaches Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man and the high priest also, and Jesus brings our praise to the Father. You see? So these are the very practical, concrete applications of the Trinity. It is found in baptism. It's found in the way that we pray, pray and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So coming back to pray, so when I pray, I begin to realize that when I say audience of one, it's not just me and God in my room alone, but three persons of the Trinity are listening to my prayer. That means four people are, four persons are actually present in that room at that time. And I begin to realize I'm surrounded by the love of God. I'm surrounded by God's relational and full presence. And I never felt alone again when I prayed. So the Trinity is really, I begin to discover very true. It is the most practical, but we've not really dug hard enough to read our Bibles to see where it is. Uh, the most practical, the most relational, because God is a relational God. Mm. 
we don't relate to God mathematically. <laughs> we don't relate to God like an ice, you know, water is ice, you know, and so and so forth. You see, we relate to God relationally. So I think the last thing I would say is that, I mean, as I learned about the Trinity, uh, in the end, the Trinity is a mystery. And this is something that I learned from Islam. Because uh, when, you know, when Muslims ask me, you know, well, how do you explain the Trinity? You know? And my answer to Muslims is, and no Muslim has ever pushed me back on this, I would say to Muslim, ah, you asked me to explain to you who God is. But God is a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. If I could explain God, you know, the mystery to you, then I would be God. <laughs> so if you want to understand the Trinity, you pray to God and ask God to explain that mystery and reveal that mystery to you. And Muslims can accept this. See, the problem with us is that we are very rational, logical people, and we always want to find out and explain things about God, but there are just some things that God will refuse to bow to our logic, will refuse because that is where faith comes in. You see? And for this reason, I think God never reveals the fullness of how to explain the mystery of the Trinity uh, to us. And that also ties in with the mystery of the Incarnation as well, which I'm sure we can talk about. Yeah, yeah. That's why I wanted to go first. <laughs> Jeff. You taking notes, bro? Yes. No, I was, I was, I was actually, <laughs> as you were talking, yeah. I was like, I have never, I've never put that Jesus' ministry started Trinitarian and ended Trinitarian. And I always knew it started Trinitarian mm -hmm. in, in that picture. I never saw that he ends it that way. That was, I, so the Ultimate mission team. Yeah. <laughs> that was so helpful for me. Yeah. Because then I, that, because and that there's, in, there's immense amounts of purpose behind that for us, uh, of what that means to live a, a life in Christ, a full life in the Spirit and a full life in the Father, you know, an invitation into that relationship in the beginning and into the end as we transition into what he has for us next in the next life. So as we come to faith, we experience the fullness of the Trinity as we go into eternity, we get to experience more of that grace and that love and that connection and that relationship, and it's all there. And so I, I had just not uh, seen that before. That was so helpful and, for me. And so this is why we can actually pray to the Spirit as well, you see, because so when we pray to God, so the Spirit is God, Jesus is God, Father is God. So when we pray to God, we are actually praying to the Trinitarian God. But the interesting thing is that the Spirit points us to the Son. You see, because Jesus says, no, I, I sent you the Comforter, okay? I sent you the Helper. He will testify the world and tell me of who I am. So the Spirit will ultimately point to Jesus. And then Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the Son points to the Father. So if we pray to the Spirit, the Spirit will point us to the Son. If we pray to the Son, the Son will point us to the Father. So ultimately, this is how the Trinity also works. So, I don't, I don't want to push back on you a little bit on this, right? Okay. So, there, there, there is really a hierarchy to the Trinity because the Father, Jesus says, the things that I do, it, that I do not, but that which the Father tells me to do. You see, Jesus always obeys what the Father tells him to do. And then when Jesus sends the Spirit, the Spirit actually does the things that Jesus does and testifies back to Jesus. The, the main problem, I think, Ryan, is that in our culture, in American culture, when we see hierarchy, we don't like hierarchy because we see that's oppression. 
we are putting people down, we're making people unequal, that's hierarchy, right? But the interesting thing about the Trinity is that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. You have hierarchy, but all three are equally God. Hierarchy and equality. It's a mystery. Isn't that the same in invitation even in, in, as, uh, uh, in the church? Like, we're, we're to come together as a body, but there is different ways in which the church operates where there is that hierarchy, but we're still one body, one part that's moving together. Yeah? I agree with you, John, on that, too. I, I do think the, that hierarchy... Yeah, I, yeah, I think maybe it is a, a very American thing to... It's to yeah. husband-wife also, you see? Sure. Hierarchy, okay? So the husband is the head of the wife, okay? That's mm -hmm. hierarchy. But husband and wife are equally human, you see, so the husband and wife relationship, in a way, is kind of a reflection of the Trinity. You have this hierarchy in the Trinity, but they are equal, we are equal in our humanity. So the thing is, how do we express the equality of our humanity in the midst of a hierarchical relationship? Yeah. You see? I mean, even Paul's going, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no slave, there is, you know, like... Even within that, there are, I mean, obviously there's positional things that are happening in that dynamic, but he's going, we're all equal under, in Jesus Christ, in yeah. his death and his resurrection, yeah. in the same way that husband and wife, in the same way that the body operates, yeah? No, no oppression in yes, the hierarchy exactly, of the Trinity exactly, whatsoever. Exactly, exactly. So therefore, there, it cannot be any oppression of the husband and the wife yeah. in this hierarchy, but we live in a fallen culture, yeah. the yeah. fallen world. So every time we see hierarchy, we rebel against that, not realizing yeah, yeah, that the Trinity yeah. holds out something totally different than this right, world. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. I hope yeah, you all see how important this is. Like, <laughs> yeah. this, you mean, you're watching us go like, ah, this is so important. Yeah. And I, I really do, I don't think, I mean, I didn't grow up this way. I didn't, get, I didn't grow up getting taught this. I didn't really even get taught this in Bible college. And so this is really, really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And again, when we're talking about boundary conditions, this is a boundary marker for us as Christians. Uh, we were talking about this uh, before, and I used this example on Sunday, but um, the idea of, uh, so Jehovah's Witnesses, you'd go, well, we're, we're, we mostly believe the same thing, right? And they just don't believe about the Trinity. You know, that's just, they just don't believe that. And you go, well, no, that's a big deal. <laughs> that is, that moves them out of the realm of kind of Orthodox Christian belief. Um, because the Trinity is vitally important. And you remove the Trinity from, from who we are as Christians, you're losing something that's so beautiful that I think right now we're talking a lot about, but we're just scratching the surface of in terms of grasping this beautiful thing that continues to... It has like, there's so much fodder for new revelation every single time you think about it and you come around it in a different way. And it's, it's beautiful, but it is a boundary marker for our faith. Yeah, the Trinity I, is important. And I would say within the, I think the one that hits home really here too is there's been a really pretty significant movement of basically going like Mormons and Christians are the same. Yeah. And they're not. No. no. They're not. And... It doesn't mean we, ex, you know, we, yeah. you know, we go. No, we're not going to have any relationship with you. But we are. They say that Jesus and Satan are brothers, <laughs> you know, and so we're not the same. We're not yeah. the same. And this is that boundary marker that we really do need to make, where we go. Oh, we're just we're in the same family. No, we're not. Yeah. No, we're no, we're not. Um, but let's talk. Let's keep working right. through and thinking through. But 
this is a boundary marker for us. We're saying, no, this is, and it was for the early church too. Yeah. Um, no, this is where we're different. This is where we're speaking something different. Yeah, and theology, theology matters. And you can hold right theology and still love people. And, and I, I told that story on Sunday, but it really was, it was one of those moments where I was like, ha, gotcha. You know, here's a, here's a Bible verse in your Bible that discounts your belief about God, gotcha. And uh, they walked away and, and didn't encounter Jesus um, in our conversation. And just because you get it right doesn't mean that you were loving them well. And, but at the same time, I do think we live in these sort of dangerous times where everybody's telling you, oh, don't hold those boundary markers. You, if you're healthy, that mean that you, then you're open to everything. And, and we're, we're saying that's just, that's just not true. I mean, you have to work so hard in the boundary conditions the theological boundary conditions in your heart, and they really do matter. And so a lot of people are like, well, I just don't want to think about that. But it's actually really, really important. And strengthening our faith, deepening our roots means that we talk about something like the Trinity, which you could kind of discount as, oh, and it is mysterious. Absolutely. But sometimes people use that as a way to discount it and to not really honor it. But that's not like that's not what it is. Yes, it's mysterious, but it is so worth thinking about, and it's so worth chewing on, and it's so worth reading your Bible with that lens and going, "Wow, I never saw that." Um, and this this is one of those things for us. It's a boundary market that's really important. So, yeah, I had I had a moment to, today. I'm, I'm like debating whether I was going to bring it up or not, or if I should. But I, I got to go to a prayer breakfast uh, this morning at GCU, and I walked in, and there's like all these kids in like black pants and white shirts with little name tags and I'm like huh and it's elder 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 and church of latter-day saints at a prayer breakfast to pray and I just went they were I I, I walked in and I was like you know like caught me off guard because I was like we're not praying the same God that's what it was It, it was just like I mean, again, I'm not saying, they, and there was no, like, they're not trying to evangelize or anything. They were really just serving it, and I was so grateful that they served. But it was like a pause for me. Like, we're at a prayer breakfast, and, and y'all are here, and you're welcoming everybody, and so kind, so kind. But I was like, no, 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 like, it's not the same, you know? And, and so it, even this morning, trying to go, like, getting my brain to go, like, does that feel like accommodating? Is that, you know, like I just was in a bit of tension. And I think that tension is important. I think that intention draws out like, where are we really at in this conversation? Where, what do I really believe? And I think it's really important. And this is why I think we're doing the series to go. It's really important to know what we believe because you're going to get caught in the situation and they're going to go like, we're the same. And you're going to be like, no, yeah. we're not. And you know? I, w- I would say that even, even though they might say that, they don't agree that. With no, that. of course because, not. Because because <laughs> yeah, I was not. I was uh, I was telling somebody that maybe I was telling David this one somebody, but I when I was in high school um, I was really getting into apologetics. I got saved and and um, and we had a, a Mormon temple that was just down the road from my my parents' house. Oh yeah, a little refill. Um, and. Um, so Mormons would come to my house, and I would invite them in, and I would talk to them, and we would sit and talk for a long time. And I must have been put on some list of, like, this guy's really interested in Mormonism. So, like, I, they would come to my house all the time. 
And so I'd sit down and I would talk to him and, you know, and, and then I got married and I left, you know, left my house. And one day my dad called me and he's like, so many LDS people come to our house. Like, I, like, I wish, like, how can we get you off of this what list? Like done? now I'm on the list, you know, Join um, the club. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you, when you talk to somebody and, and you were, you were rightly correcting me that they would like to be called LDS. Um, but, um, when you talk, talk to them, you might hear, and even in pop culture, like, oh, you're so intolerant. You can't even tolerate, yeah. you know, Mormonism, which feels so similar to yours and your faith. And, um, but even Latter-day Saints, members of that church w- are trying to come and proselytize us. So they, they, they are agreeing that we don't, yes. uh, we don't yes. agree on yes. theology enough that they're trying to get us to so really thought about it like that banner of christendom yes and and that's i think that's the thing i think is really important yes exactly and so again the boundary conditions looking at uh looking at the the church of latter-day saints they are outside of the orthodox belief of christianity enough that you would say that is not in the same family and um and again the 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 phrase we've been using lately clarity is kindness it is it, it is okay to be clear on that it doesn't mean that you're not loving now you can have that perspective and not be loving absolutely um but just just because you have that perspective or even you voice that perspective doesn't mean you don't love them so yeah yeah, and let me just add that it, it really makes a big deal in one's life what you believe. Because when Mormons believe that, you know, Jesus uh, has a brother, Satan, and, you know, and, uh, which is God, uh, his brother, okay, Lucifer is his brother. But Mormons, uh, sorry, LDS, okay, also believe that Jesus originally was a man who then became God. And so by implication, Jesus did good works, perfect works, okay, that uh, made him to be God. And so for the, the LDS, the, the doctrine of salvation is that you are saved by faith after all you, you can do. Yeah. They add this faith. And so therefore, they, they never really have an assurance of salvation. And if you speak to any genuine LDS person, they, there's always a checklist of things to yeah, do. Yeah. Have I attended uh, Sunday services yes. enough? Have I done a small group enough? Have I done my Bible study? Have I memorized? You see, In it's the always... Yeah. The tithe and We're thinking about bringing that one here, though. Like, just, it's gonna <laughs> just be, checking your yeah, uh, just, checking yeah, your taxes. Right, start yeah, knocking yeah. on doors. <laughs> life, right? No, it does absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. So in that sense, it's it's very very key that it's it's so different from Christianity. You know. It, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also important. One thing, if I could throw in a little bit um, here, I think it's important to know that. Um, like even that uh, denotion between Mormonism and LDS, they have gone through. It is a newer religion, and they have gone through a lot of reforming, let's call it, um, reforming throughout the years. So just like, you know, an uninformed person about the Christian religion would say to me, I've had someone say this, like, your, your priest does this. And I'm like, I don't I have a pastor. You know, like, I think you think I'm Catholic. You know, it's kind of like that, right? So um, I think it, it's the other way around, too, you know, knowing the knowledge of the different iterations of what the church, from a organizational standpoint, has changed their beliefs on, you know, a lot of them, you know, say we don't do the plural marriage thing, you know, and then they're fundamentalists and then they're, you know, so I think Absolutely. that's an important thing. And, that, to but, and, I, and I think the, the, the thing that is, is left for us is to understand where they stand right now, which, yeah. which I think that's absolutely to, to believe that Jesus was man and earned God, God status somehow. It, that belief and, and what John's saying, and I totally agree, that belief leaks into your life. Like how could it not? 
and and it really it really shows us the importance of those sort of theological boundaries. So yeah, cool. You want to move on? Yes, please. Okay, cool. <laughs> Great. I'm glad. <laughs> All right. Next question: Was Jesus really conceived of the Holy Spirit? What does that even mean? Jeff, why don't you start this one out? Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. We've used John uh, I, I, as a starter too many times. Yeah, I, I'll use yeah. your nervous, nervous laughter no. as a cue, cue that you want to talk first. No, no, no. Tell us about it, Jeff. Yeah. Yes. So I think first and foremost, uh, the part that it's specifically in the Cree were in like with the spirit. And, and I, I think a part of it, it this is mysterious. There, there's no way... And it needs to be mysterious. We need to leave and be in wonder about this whole thing and that God would use a 13-year-old girl to house the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So both fully human and fully divine. Like, how can our brains comprehend that? Um, but we do believe he was born, like, the same way, human side, with born like the same psalm that he knit us together in our mother's womb jesus went through that whole experience but the spirit and the power of god moving in in interacting in that exchange now he is fully god fully human so i think this gets back to an earlier point that you made which is like well if i can explain all this then i'm god Right, and this is the mysterious that draw that mystery that draws us in to learn and to grow and discover. And one of the things I was saying early was, uh, J.I. Packer wrote this book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And what he was trying to do for those in, within Reformed theology, uh, which say you know you're elect, which means God's chosen who's in and who he's out within Reformed theology. Um, but what do you do with evangelism then? Because the Lord, because the scriptures clearly call us to evangelize. Go, Jesus says, go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So what do you do with that? That seems like it's in contradiction with one another. And what, what Packer does that I thought was so helpful, at least for me, and this has helped me learn a lot of things, is uh, both are true. They're not in conflict with one another. Actually, both are true. So he is fully God, and he's fully human, and we're not going to be able to understand that fully. Uh, that's a divine work, that's a divine interaction in, in our, um, that, that he did. So that's my very, very Moody Bible Institute sim simple answer. Um, but yeah, if you guys have more on that. No, I, I agree with you, Jeff, because this is one of those mysteries, right? The incarnation of how Jesus is both fully God and fully man is a mystery. And uh, this is where faith comes in. Now, for me, I mean, I was a trained chemist, you know. I'm trained to think logically, empirically, verify the evidence, repeat it by hypothesis, design, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I can go, you know, the full-blown, uh, you know, scientific way on this. But there are some things that science cannot prove, like science cannot prove the existence of love. How can you put love in a test tube replicate it, produce it, uh, you know, and so you, you cannot. And so there are many things that lies outside the boundary of science. And this is one of them. Now, that being said, there are two ways to explain it. One is, which I've said already, to me, I take it by faith. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to 
know, all I need to know is that God did it, you see. Now, the other, interestingly, if you want to go this other way, is that now in, in science, as we are exploring the deep oceans in creatures and so forth, we're finding some very interesting creatures where in, under certain conditions, where uh, a creature, I think it's, it's a cell or something, you know, that does not have a mate, it can, even though it is male, somehow change its maleness into a femaleness and then produce an offspring under certain conditions, which is very, very, very interesting. Okay, I can't remember what that exact creature is. Okay, so now to me, this poses a very interesting question uh, in terms of science. If a creature can do that, why couldn't God even do something beyond what we know of an ordinary human being, you see? Even though we don't have the necessary mechanisms right now to understand it. So again, it just points to something that is beyond our grasp, but because we cannot fully explain it, we just sometimes refuse to accept it. But this is not what faith is. Faith, it's Christianity, it's faith-seeking understanding. And it's still faith learning to grow in humility, what we don't know, because we are just simply not God. So, yeah. Well, and I think as we were talking about this too, we, we found ourselves falling on, trying to find some real common ground. Go, what is the basics of what we're saying here? The basics of what we're saying here is it's clearly biblical uh, that there was a, a, uh, a virgin birth as a sign that was a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So there's this beautiful sort of fulfillment of prophecies that were given, and Jesus fulfills over 300 Old Testament prophecies, which is wonderful, and this is one of those. And I think for people who want to remove this from theology, they are very clearly pulling something that is biblical, and they're pulling it out, and they're using their rational thought to edit the Bible, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we just pull it out. Um, and there are some things like we, we look at, I mean, I think about theology a little bit like, you know, Jenga, you know. You pull some pieces out. Some of them are near the top, you know, they're the safe ones to pull out. Some of these are near the bottom, and this is going to almost certainly make it topple. Uh, I feel like this is one of those. This is one of those very clearly uh, a miraculous, biblically, biblically based sign uh, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so to me, I think that this is actually a very, very important theological uh, boundary for us. So, yeah. And the word became flesh. That, I mean, that's what that dynamic kind of comes in and just comes together. And, and we're, by faith, we have to walk in and live in that. And I don't like... To try to reason it away. And you can do that. You can do that. It just takes as much faith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you is like devil's advocate, you know. We maybe hear a lot of like, well, you just have to have faith. Or what I'm hearing a lot of is the barrier to entry to a lot of this is an open mind to the mystery of God. Right? So like how do we, not that it's our job to convert people to to be open-minded to the mystery of God, but how do you even begin to articulate that to someone who is so not willing to have an open mind? Does that make sense? Like, where do you, where do you start? And does it even get you anywhere? Should you even try? Maybe? Yeah. I think um, just because I considered myself an atheist who became a Christian, I think I... I can look back and I could back solve, and I think every single person is completely different. Um, but in my mind, um, I grew up, my dad was an engineer, very like engineer minded, 
to me, I had no, no childhood experience believing in God. I had no childhood experience going to church. So all of it felt very foreign to me. Um, And all of it felt very like, from my perspective, because I didn't understand it, it felt very childish. Like, oh, you're just believing in God and these fairy tales, you know. Um, And I used to argue with my which I didn't know she was going to be my wife, but my, you know, my, my best friend at the time, Blake, and uh, we used to argue about God. And I remember really clearly one time my future mother-in-law, and again, I didn't know she was going to be my future mother, mother-in-law, but she was t- talking to me about the Bible. And I just remember telling her the Bible's a bunch of crap. Like it's, it's a, like, I don't believe one bit of that fairy tale book that you're putting in front of me, you know? And, um, Ironically, a few years later, she bought me my first Bible uh, after I became a Christian. And, gotcha. Uh, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, she got me. She definitely got me. Um, but I think, you know, for me, and I talked about this at Easter, there was an entry point for me. Like, I, I couldn't have been convinced that the, the earth was seven, seven days creation. I, I couldn't have been convinced that the, the flood had actually happened. Like, those things to me, I was so far down the road of thinking that was fairy tale, that there was just, there was just no convincing me. But the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was one of those things that I just, I couldn't poke holes in it. I wanted to, but I just, I couldn't poke any holes in it. And I think it was like that, (laughs) it was like that gateway drug into Christianity. It was like, this is one thing I can bite off on. And this is one thing I can't refute. And and so, so did the mystery, if somebody had just told me, hey, it's just mysterious, you should just believe it, it would have done nothing for me. So I needed a little entry point. I needed a little bit of understanding that there's a reasonableness in believing in God. I needed something like that. And obviously the Holy Spirit was working in it, and, but I needed that entry point. Once I got into that and I was going, okay, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is pretty reasonable, and the, and the resurrection of somebody just elicits a response from you. It has to. You go, well, if this guy rose from the dead, I have to, that has to tell me something about the miraculous nature, the mysterious nature of God. From that point on, I could start biting off on mystery. From that point on, I could go, oh man, well, if that's true, then, oh man, I I guess that that must be true too. What a mysterious thing that is. And I also think it's the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? Like the, the Holy Spirit was convicting me of things along the way in my own personal life. The Holy Spirit was revealing things to me along the way that I still had the choice to choose. Um, But I think that's the way, in my life, that's the way I approach it. I needed a little bit of an entry point before I could just bite off on, this is mystery, you should just believe it. Jeff? I I really feel like, even within deconstructionism, at some point, the end of, what's the end of that? And I think what a part of where we're at culturally is we try to explain out the mystery of God. And I think a part of it is bringing back the awe of that, the wonder of that, and inviting back people back in. Because lots of faithful people who committed their life to Christ are now deconstructing and walking away. And I'm like, in the end, if you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good, I believe that he is going to rescue a lot of people out of that deconstructionism. And they will find themselves once again reveling like Paul in the mystery of God. Who can understand the mind of God? Who can comprehend? Who am I? You know, because our minds cannot fully go. And we're never meant to. We were always meant to be in awe. 
always meant to wonder, always meant like the little children to investigate. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we find worship. We find how great he is and how really small we are, but how, how deeply he loves us. You know, and yeah, I think absolutely. Jesus is coming to us and going, hey, I'm God. You know, and he loves us. That's why the incarnation is so important. That's why the word become flesh and moving into the neighborhood is so important. I'm not far away. I'm, I'm near. The mystery comes near, near to us. And we get to live in that. So I actually think this whole thing within deconstructionism, in my opinion, is a part is like we've spent so much time trying to explain the mystery away yeah. instead of going, it's mysterious. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's mysterious. As, and as if atheism isn't also mysterious. Totally. You know, like, right. And I think once I got on the other the side of it, I was problem. going, yeah. I had faith. And it was just different. It was just a different exactly. sort of faith. And I was putting it in something else because life is mysterious and life is it. it it, it demands faith somewhere at some point. You yeah. can't be something. completely empirical yeah. 100% right. of the time. And so Think even for me, that. those little entry points into faith, it led me into this place where I could accept mystery. Because you can't accept mystery as an atheist. you gotta, you got to solve all of the things, That's good. you know? That's good. Um, but, but as soon as you come into that relationship with Jesus you embrace the mystery of God and it leads you into this sort of worshipful state that you just can't get anywhere else. And I agree with you. When you get to that place where you have to explain all the things, uh, you're, you're, in, you're in, a, in a losing battle. You will not win that battle because you won't explain all the things. Yeah. And, and let me just say that everything in life really depends on faith. Now, I'm, I'm, no, I've got some money in here, right? Okay. You do? So if, if do you? Know, I wait a minute. a non-profit called Phoenix One, and we are currently looking <laughs> for donations. <laughs> slash give. <laughs> Phoenix1.org slash give. So, we got a Washington. So at the back I got you, of Jeff. this one dollar bill, it Thinking says about. in God. We trust. Okay, now a lot of people don't believe in God, okay? But nonetheless, the, this one dollar bill is only as good as the fact that we have faith. We trust that when we give it to a bank, that we will get a value that will be equal to what it can do, you see? Is this a message about inflation? Oh, no. Yeah, okay. don't get Ryan started, bro. <laughs> bankruptcy. Okay, no, so, so, this is a road that so, we will not come back from. Yeah. Love you. So we, we saw in the last couple of months some bank runs, okay? Banks that just belly up and flopped, okay? Why? The, the problem was that, the interesting thing was that these banks, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and so on and so forth, they actually had assets. But it was a liquidity problem because they could not convert the assets into liquidity for people to actually get that out. And it all started because of Twitter. Because people thought, oh, you know, I, 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 think, that, I think, you know, their finances sounds shaky and what started to spread. And so people began to lose faith in the bank. And the whole thing collapsed like a house of cards. I mean, the things that we think are rock solid in our life, our financial institutions, money, and all of these things are really based on faith and trust. That people say they do what they will do, we will be able to get it in return. But in Jesus Christ, we don't have an asset problem because it's a, rea it's a historical reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It happened. We don't have a liquidity problem because we can actually experience the life of God and see its effects on people right. and draw benefits from that daily life. Right. You see? So, we need faith. 
everything in life operates by faith. Even in our family that we trust, our parents will say they will do what they will do, and so and so forth. So to say that faith is something weak because we can't prove it or empirically test it, well, it really discounts so many other things that we do in life, including financial insurance. As well. Man, that is so good. Spiritual liquidity. I never <laughs> thought of that. Yeah, yeah stealing living, that. You're the living, stealing I'm that. the living water. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's like going to use that one in a sermon in the yes, future. Yeah, lock that yeah. one away. Well, for hey, later. Um, I want to be respectful of everyone's time, but um, can I go off script? Can we? Do we have time for one more question? Yes. Do you think that's okay? Is yes, that okay with everybody less. in the room? Yeah, I'm seeing yeah. a lot of yeses. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's just so good, right? Yes. We got you. So we got we to gotta take advantage of all your uh, knowledge and wisdom. So uh, let's lead off, and then we'll, we'll close out after this. But <clears throat> how would you respond to a person that says, I'm all for what Jesus taught, and his principles are good guidelines for a moral life. I just don't think he was the Son of God or the Messiah. Then you're not a Christian. I mean that's the dividing line. So, you know, so I, I mean, again, like I, I, that's fine. You, you, you know, people can make that claim. They do it all the time, but you're not going to be able to experience the mystery that we're talking about, the intimacy that we're talking about. And so, yeah, but there's a lot of great principles. There's a lot of great books. There's a lot of great teachers, but none of them are God and none of them gave up their only begotten son to rescue and ransom, to continue relationship for all of eternity. And so, yeah, that's going to be a dividing line. So many people can say that but you're not a Christian and you don't affirm who we are and what we are. So you might, you can go pick your lane. Where do you want to go? You know, you want Buddha? Go after Buddha. You know, you want Muhammad? Go after Muhammad, you know. But that's going to be the dividing line that's going to go, yeah, a lot of people say that. And you can say that. You have the free will to make that decision and, and to say that. Um, but it's really, I mean, again, like, that's the taste and see. Like, but I would encourage somebody who's in that going, well, really discover who Jesus is more than that, more than just a great teacher. He's God. Yeah. He's God. Well, and I think this, the question back is, do you know what Jesus taught? <laughs> Be, because it's not just a, I mean, the caricature of Jesus's teaching from the outside of the church is like, oh, he taught us to be really loving and he taught yeah. us to, it was, you know. It, well, if I yeah. could inject really yeah, quick, yeah, yeah, because yeah. I actually yeah. had this question and I, I nixed it. But um, like, we hear a lot of like, well, Jesus was just focused on injustice. That was his entire ministry. Yeah, that's all you he hear did. that a lot yes. from I, I have the privilege of being an average zillennial. Yeah. So all the content that I see online... We're getting finer and, and finer with those titles, by I the way. I know. Selenial. I'm just defining myself more. It's fine. But, um, uh, but like, I have... I get bombarded with vertical short-form videos um, on every platform ever because that's how the internet works now about, like, well, you know, like, uh, well, if you were truly a Christian, you'd be obsessed with injustice and, and, on, and uh, loving everybody. And the Bible says not to judge. And Jesus said not to judge, right? You get bombarded with all these things. And it's like, are we reading the well, same Bible? Well, I'm literally, I'm in John chapter 9. It says, yeah, for please. judgment, I came into this world. Um, so, um, so, so, again, do you know what Jesus taught? Jesus, I mean, the title of these things, especially John, starting in chapter 10, you could just keep moving on. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. 
Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. And like you, you pour into this stuff and you go, either, either Jesus was crazy or he was who he said. Like this, if, if Jesus wasn't God, these chapters are the most narcissistic chapters ever. Oh, yeah. I am this. I'm the, I'm the, res, I'm the resurrection. I'm the, yeah. like this is. Like, well, that's I, Lewis's lunatic. He's either what? Lunatic. Yeah. Yeah. Lunatic. Liar or Lord. Yeah, lunatic fool or liar. Lord, yeah. And again, so, so for people to say, you know, um, oh, he was just a good teacher. Well, he was. Do you read Jesus' teachings that aren't about that and go, wow, that is awesome. And I, I talked about it on Sunday. There are things that we just can't even imagine our society without that Jesus taught. Taking care of the poor, taking care of children, taking care of the least of these. Like there are some things that really are what we'd call justice-oriented or whatever. Um, I wouldn't call it social justice, but it justice-oriented. Um, and, and those things are true and they are beautiful and they're miraculous that he taught that. But he also taught, I mean, again, John... John he goes, me and the Father are one. We are one. Like, I, I, th- there are things that Jesus said, and you can ignore them if you want to. You could go, I like some of Jesus' teachings. But everything that Jesus taught leads us to this point where we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. Is he who he says he was? And I, and I think, again, for, let's say, a non-Christian is asking that question, Dive into the teachings of Jesus. That would be my challenge. Dive into them. Read them. You will find grace there. You will find a heart for justice. You will also find a strong Jesus. You are also going to find a Jesus that brings moral clarity, which is really uncomfortable for our, our, our culture right now. You're going to find a Jesus that says, this is who I am, and I came to do this thing. And if you discount that, you're throwing away a major portion of what he taught. So I don't even know if you could say, I like what he taught, but I don't believe that he was his own. Like, I just kind of feel like either you agree with it or you just throw it out or you just well, throw it and, out. And one of, the, one of the things that I find so beautiful that Jesus did is, you know, so the woman at the well, what I love about that interaction or the feeding of the 5,000 is they just wanted the water. They just wanted the bread. And Jesus is like, there's more. And I think we're so tethered to the temporal, like we're so tethered to earth. And he's like, I want to give you more. I want to give you myself. And that's all these things. He feeds these people, right? And they're like, give me more, give me more. He's like, I am the more. And I think so often we're, we're the same way. Give me more. And he's like, I am that more. Yeah. And I, so I think even all throughout Jesus' ministry, they like want the healing. They want the this. They want the that. And he's trying to go, I am all of those things, not just these temporal things. You are going to wake up and be hungry. You're going to be thirsty again. But not in me. Yeah. Not in me. And I, I really do believe, like, our souls are just longing for that fulfillment, that wholeness, that fullness. Our culture, they're just desperate, just utterly desperate. I read an article this morning about a 47-year-old mom blogger who just committed suicide. It's just like we're desperate, desperate for belonging, desperate for intimacy and nearness, but we're just trying to get it from social media feeds, from logical explanations on everything, explaining away the mystery of God. And it's like, I want to give you myself. And so that, like, for me, that question 
is like heartbreaking because I think so many people are asking it. And it's just, it's such a, I just see Jesus over Jerusalem crying after Palm Sunday. Because they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he goes, and they're going to be yelling crucify, crucify, crucify. And it grieves his heart because he, he gladly, he wants like a sheep to the shepherd. He wants to care for them. And he knows he's going to ultimately lay down his life. That's that invitation. That's the, what he's drawing us into. But we're so tethered to the things of earth that we miss the mysterious love and commitment and, uh, that he has given to us. So. And you know what Ryan says uh, about Jesus is right in the sense that Jesus did come to bring judgment. But let me just point this out. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Mm. Mm. So you see, when, when people say, you Christians are very judgmental, my answer is, it's, it's absolutely right. Because we are, we we are going to judge ourselves first. Because if we don't judge ourselves first, we don't have a right to judge you. Because God is judging us first, you see. But too often... We think, or maybe some people think that we Christians judge others first without judging ourselves, but that's not how it works out in the Bible. Because Israel is always judged first, right. you see, yeah. based on how Israel treats the other nations. And God judges us on based on how we treat others as well. So there is this aspect of Jesus as God that He will judge everybody, but Jesus will judge all of us. So before we say anything about others, we need to look at ourselves first. But then... If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He's going to come and judge you as well. In the same way that Jesus judges us too, you see. None of us escape the judgment of God. But at the same time, none of us escapes the love of God as well. That's what Psalm 23 is. His love, God's love pursues us. Your goodness pursues us. Because God does not want us to fall under His judgment because of the mercy and the love and the grace wow. that has been given by Jesus Christ. And that is what ultimately Jesus Christ is so different from every, anybody or anything else in this world. It's not just a moral person telling good deeds, but Jesus paid for what he said with his life. Siddhartha Gautama did not do that. The prophet Muhammad did not do that. Nobody in Hinduism did that, but Jesus actually believe what he said that he paid for it with his life wow. and then was resurrected for the day. and that's the difference yeah it's good i think we could just stop there yeah. <laughs> unless jeff or ryan you got something better than that <laughs> that's a really good um mic drop moment to uh kind of end on and be respectful of y'all of y'all's time so thank you so much for coming out jeff would you mind praying praying us out I was cool ask if I could do oh that. oh yeah. look so at thank that you. thank you so the much. spirit man yeah i know Holy Spirit, we say thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, helping us. Tonight, we're, we're just trying to jump into the deep end of the mysterious nature of God the Father, God the Son, and Spirit. You're helping us. You're helping us. You're helping, I mean, just even on here, iron sharpening iron. I, I mean, I've grown in my faith tonight. I've grown in, 
an understanding of some things I didn't see before. And look how kind you are to do that, to point me to Jesus. And Jesus, you are intercessing on my behalf right now to God the Father. You're going, hey, look, he's a good guy, but he's got some stuff, you know? And, he, and, and you're doing that because you love me. And your work didn't just finish on earth. It continues in the heavenly realms right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that covers a multitude of sins through your son, Jesus. And so we call out on you, Father, Son, and Spirit, lead and guide us in this mysterious work that we don't fully understand, but we want to know you. We want to know you. Like Paul said, I want to know him. I want to know him in his death. I want to know him in his resurrection. I want to know him in his life. I really want to know him intimately. So, Father, hear our hearts. We want to know you. We want to know your son deeper. Spirit, we need your help. We want to know more. Teach us to see the people the way you see them. Teach us to see ourselves the way you see us. We want to be your hands and your feet in this world. We do not want to stay stagnant in our theology. We want to grow and go with this good news that you are touching us with tonight through your word and through the discussion of how beautiful you are. So we bless you, we bless you, and we thank you, and we glorify you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hey, can we give a round of applause for our great panel? Thank you guys so much for joining us. Hey, if you have any questions about the Bible or theology or more about what we've discussed tonight, please email us at ask at livingstreams.org. We will try to get to your question. Um, and uh, have a good night. See you later.